0: Thank you Pastor Rick for doing our scripture reading this afternoon. If you would just please keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 26 so you can follow along. When she turned age six, Simone Biles went, on, went with her class to a field trip to a local gymnastics club and she began to spontaneously imitate the gymnasts that she saw there and then later insisted that her parents enroll her at that local gymnastics club. When her skill and opportunities grew by leaps and bounds over the next few years, her parents switched her from public school to homeschool so she could up her training to 32 hours per week. Between 2012 and 2016, Simone Biles would go on to train hard and pursue her passion, a path that would lead her to join the US Olympic team, to compete in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, and then go on to win five Olympic medals. Simone Biles is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, gymnasts of all time. Olympic athletes spend years to prepare for their for their one special moment. That one moment they step on the world stage and give it their all and hope to show the world that they're the best. In Matthew chapter 26, King Jesus is in his final stage of ministry, the final climax of his life. That one moment for Jesus is his death and resurrection. This is why he came. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Before entering into his one final moment, his one special moment, he goes into one final act of preparation. With with prayerful preparation, Jesus stands up in his hour of trial while his disciples stumble. With prayerful preparation, Jesus stands up in his hour of trial While his disciples stumble. So please follow along as we look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As Jesus looks to the final two days of his life, in his one special moment, Jesus goes into prayer, intense prayer. Jesus and his disciples have already finished the Passover meal, and it's well into the evening, about 10 or 11 o'clock p.m. And at this point, Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. A better translation might be terrible distress and misery or crushed with anguish. This is more than just sadness or discomfort. Jesus is crushed with anguish. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke informs us that in his agony, His sweat became like great drops of blood. Why is Jesus in terrible distress? Why is he crushed with anguish? Greek philosophers of that day taught people to face death calmly. And as far as we can tell, Jesus wasn't calm at all. Was he weak? Is it possible for God to be weak? Is it possible for God to dread something? Well, the answer must be yes the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on human form. He became flesh and blood, a human creature that is weak and that can die. Pastor J.C. Ryle reminds us that of all creatures, none is so vulnerable as man. Our bodies, our minds, our families, our businesses, our friends are all so many doors through which trial will come. And Jesus chose become a man. He chose to take on a mortal body. He chose to become weak so that he could die for our sins. And this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane reminds us that not all sorrow, not all trouble, not all anguish, not all depression is sin. As the sinless Son of God, Jesus was troubled and anguished and even depressed. In verse 38, it says, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. It was a sadness, an anguish, even to the point of death. Emotions are real, and we shouldn't pretend that life is okay when it isn't. Jesus didn't. But it was more than his looming death that caused this deep and profound anguish. Many pagans and unbelievers, they face death with calmness. There's something special here going on, something unique that troubled Jesus. Jesus prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is this cup? What cup is Jesus referring to in this prayer? To understand what Jesus meant, we have to look back at the Old Testament. The cup is a symbol. It's an object that's used in many different ways. There's the cup of fellowship, the cup of blessing, the cup of anointing. But the cup is also used in a different way. It can also be used to refer to God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin. Isaiah fifty-one seventeen, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. This passage refers to God's coming judgment upon the disobedient nation, this nation, the nation of Judah, must drink the cup of his wrath, the cup of staggering. Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In fact, this important theme, this cup of judgment, this cup of wrath is picked up in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, 9 and 10. If anyone worships the beast, this is the Antichrist, the false god, and its image, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This cup that Jesus is referring to in his prayer is the cup of wrath, the cup of God's judgment against sin. It's a cup given to the wicked as God executes his righteous judgment against sinners who deserve his wrath. And this is the cup that Jesus will have to drink when he dies on the cross as a substitutionary offering, dying in our place for our sins. And Jesus sees the cup of this God's wrath, the cup of judgment given to the wicked. He sees the cup that he will have to drink as the sin bearer, and it crushes him with anguish, with deep anguish. So Jesus wasn't just dreading death. He was dreading the cup of God's wrath, and that made him tremble. If, God forbid, you were ever to get into a serious car accident, the airbag that's in your car is designed to protect you from the full impact of the collision. One of the earliest commercials I remember watching growing up was this Chrysler commercial where Chrysler was showcasing all the airbags they were putting into their vehicles. And in this commercial there is a twist however. There's a crash test, test dummy in the car but this crash test dummy is pulled out of the vehicle and a real-life human being gets in the driver's seat, shuts the door, puts on his seatbelt, turns on the car. Begins to accelerate, driving towards a concrete wall. Drives towards a concrete wall and crashes right into it. And on sudden impact, the front of the car instantly crumples. The airbag deploys, and the driver hits the airbag, which looks like a pillow. And then the driver gets out of the car, walks out. Not even a scratch. Not a scratch. When Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath, he absorbed the full judgment of God for our sin. He took all the force and all the impact of God's anger and fury so that we could walk away on the day of judgment without a scratch. Without a scratch. You might be tuning in this afternoon and you haven't yet placed your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, trusting in the one who drank the cup of God's judgment for you. On the Day of Judgment, if Christ hasn't drank the cup of God's wrath for you, then you'll have to drink it yourself. Jesus taught the realities of eternal judgment, eternal punishment in a place called hell, a place of never-ending fire and destruction. So turn to Him today. Give up your sin today. Follow Jesus today. Escape from the wrath to come today. And it's that horror of being condemned for our sins under the wrath and judgment of God that troubles Christ. That suffering, the suffering, the equivalent of an eternity in hell, many times over. And so, what does Jesus do in his moment of anguish, of being crushed with anguish, in his terrible distress? What does he do? Well, what he does is an example for each one of us. J.C. Ryle. But what is the first thing to be done in time of trouble? We must pray. Like Job, we must fall down and worship, Job 1.20. Like Hezekiah, we must spread our matters before the Lord, 2 Kings 19.14. The first person we must turn to for help must be our God. We must tell our Father in heaven all our sorrow. Is that one of the first things that we do in our time of trouble? Or is it more of an afterthought? Church, let us remember that we have a gracious Father in heaven who wants to hear our sorrow, our cares, our burdens, our depression. So knowing that this cup is coming, that his moment is coming, Jesus falls face down before God in prayerful preparation. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus shows us how to pray, to ask boldly and yet to surrender completely. To ask boldly and to surrender completely. We see Jesus here, he asks boldly, if possible, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus taught all of us to ask, seek, and knock. And Jesus does that now. He's asking, he's seeking, he's knocking, praying whether there might be another way, whether the plan of salvation could be accomplished without having to drink the cup of God's wrath. And all throughout the Bible, we see the people of God pray bold prayers. Baron Hannah prays for a child. Hezekiah asks God to cure him from a terminal illness. Paul asks God to remove the thorn from his flesh. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we see the people who were troubled, Trouble with diseases, demons, dark clouds, and death, pray for deliverance. And here, Jesus asks God the Father to remove that cup, that cup of wrath. We need to ask boldly. We need to ask big, God-glorifying requests. But Jesus didn't just ask boldly. He surrendered completely. He didn't just ask boldly. He surrendered completely. Once again, in verse 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus surrenders to his Father's will, and once again, he practices what he preaches. Remember from the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One evidence that we are disciples of Jesus Christ is the fact that we choose to submit to the will of our Father in heaven. Once again, J.C. Ryle. Would we know whether we are born again and growing in grace? Well, can we bear disappointment? Can we put up patiently with unexpected trials? Can we see our favorite plans dashed? Warm feelings and joyful frames are not the truest evidences of grace. Even our Lord himself did not always rejoice, but he could always say, Thy will be done. And we see Jesus in the garden continue that pattern of praying with boldness and praying with complete surrender. He prays a second and third time. Let's look at verses 42 through 44. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he, came, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And we see as Jesus prays the second time, we see an even greater accent on submission, a humble acknowledgement that there is no other way. If this cannot pass, unless, unless. With prayerful preparation, Jesus will stand up in his hour of trial. But let's see how the disciples do for their preparation. Let's look at verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see Jesus in his hour of temptation, struggling with God's will. And in a moment where he needs his disciples the most, he finds them sleeping. During Passover night, the people of Israel traditionally stayed awake during the night to speak of God's redemption. And besides this tradition, Jesus has been teaching all along for his disciples to stay awake. Matthew chapter 24, stay awake for you, know not, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew chapter 25, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And even more, Jesus has just warned them that they would all fall away. Look with me a few verses earlier to verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. And in verse 34, Jesus said to him, this is Peter, truly I say to you, this very night, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And yet, despite all this teaching and these warnings, they still fall asleep. They don't pray. They don't stay awake one hour to watch and pray with Jesus. Jesus needed encouragement in his hour of trial, but his friends failed him. They couldn't do the one simple thing he asked him to do, which was to watch and pray. Have you ever experienced friends failing you? Maybe it was at a time that you felt like you needed them the most. Jesus has been there. Do you have a category for brothers and sisters in the Lord who fail you, who disappoint you, who fail to meet your expectations, who offend you, who do something hurtful towards you? What Jesus does. The world gives us something called cancel culture. You make one mistake, your life is ruined, you're fired, you're blacklisted, you're beyond redemption. Thank God that Jesus doesn't operate on cancel culture. Jesus came to give us redemption culture. Redemption culture. So even though the disciples fail him, Jesus still loves them and hopes for the best. He tells them to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Sadly, the disciples don't listen. They boast much, but pray little. So Jesus tells us to watch and pray. But what does it mean for us to be watchful? What does it mean to be watchful? Well, staying watchful means being aware, being aware of our weaknesses, being aware of problems up ahead. Watchfulness is not something that's nice to have. Sometimes it's the difference between life and death. If you're not aware of a sign that says, Bridge out, you might drive right into a river and drown. If you know that temptation is around the corner and you do nothing, then you shouldn't be surprised if you fall to that temptation. Being watchful means anticipating that the bridge is out and taking countermeasures. Are you aware of the dangers of your computer or phone or social media? Are Are you aware of the dangers when you are alone? Aware of ways that lust and greed and sinful speech and pride and selfishness try to sneak into your life? And yet this section ends with the disciples still asleep. Let's look at verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. After Jesus spends the whole evening in prayer, Judas arrives with a band of soldiers. Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. He's arrested, and let's look at verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Wow, what a contrast. Jesus courageously walks into the fulfillment of God's plan, walks in complete submission to the will of God, walks into a path that will lead him to drink that cup. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide but the disciples left him and fled. With prayerful preparation, Jesus stands up in his hour of trial while his disciples stumble. In this next section, we see what happens after his arrest. Let's look at verses 57 through 60. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Jesus has been arrested by the political authorities. And these leaders have been making plans to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But what do we notice about the trial of Jesus? We notice that it's a total miscarriage of justice. There's a total disregard for the rule of law and due process. These leaders are wickedly seeking out false witness, a sin that was actually punishable by death. Deuteronomy 19, 18 through 20. If the the witness is a false witness... And has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. But what does our text say? In verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Notice what the text says, but they found none. Not even the enemies of Jesus could find any fault in him because there was none. Jesus is innocent. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Even though they found nothing wrong with Jesus, they did find something they thought they could use against him. Two witnesses in verse 61 allege that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. But did Jesus really say that? What did Jesus really say? Let's look at John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus didn't say he would destroy the physical temple. Besides, he wasn't the one who would be doing the destroying. When the Jews asked for a sign, Jesus predicted that they would destroy the temple of his body, and in three days he would raise it up. What Jesus said was misrepresented and falsified and used against him. This is what slander is, making false and damaging statements about another person. Not too long ago, Tim wrote a blog post titled The False Witness Scourge. Some of you might have seen it. On Facebook, he noticed that people were sharing a reported Joe Biden quote, completely taken out of context. It was misrepresented and falsified and used against him. Tim also saw a picture, supposedly, of President Trump that was photoshopped. It was photoshopped to lie about and slander the president. Sadly, Christians of every political stripe repost slander and those who pass along slander are guilty of making false and damaging statements doing the exact same things these leaders are doing to Jesus the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness and sadly there's a lot of false witness that's happening among Christians there's a lot of careless speech Jesus said on the day of judgment we'll have to give a, account for every careless word we speak and today he might say Ere every careless post or tweet. And yet what's even more amazing is the silence, the silence of Jesus. He hears these false witnesses. He hears the slander, the lies, the twisting of his words and says nothing. This isn't a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who refrain from striking back. And this is a direct messianic fulfillment from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But all of this isn't getting the high priest what he needs to secure the death penalty he has an allegation of something Jesus said, a false one, and then silence. He needs something more. So let's look at verses 62 through 64. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I put you under oath, in other words, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Finally, the high priest puts Jesus under oath to see if Jesus will admit to being the Messiah, the Son of God. And rather than remain silent, Jesus now opens his mouth. Throughout the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told others not to speak openly about his miracles and about his identity. He knew that people would force him to be king, to be a political messiah over Rome. So he waited for just the right time to make his official statement in a court of law and on the record You have said so, as in, these are your words. Jesus doesn't deny that he's the Christ, the Son of God, because it's the truth. But to be sure that there's no misunderstanding, he defines his terms. And This is always a good thing to do. And he says, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus teaches that the Messiah, the Son of God, is also the Son of Man. And Jesus merges two separate quotes from the Old Testament to talk about his identity and divinity. The first quote comes from Daniel chapter 7. If you're not familiar with Daniel chapter 7, it is a rich chapter on the exaltation of Christ. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a glorious vision of the exaltation of Christ. The risen and ascended Christ enters into heavenly glory and is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom over all, over all peoples, nations, and languages. Absolute dominion. And the second quote comes from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus makes an audacious claim that as the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7, he will sit at the right hand of God the Father, God Almighty, as prophesied in Psalm 110. He's doing nothing less than claiming to be God, to be worthy of worship, to rule over all creation and enjoy a kingdom that will never come to an end. And once again, Jesus turns the tables on his enemies. They think they have power over him but they're the ones doing what Jesus has planned and predicted. They think they're judging Jesus and putting Jesus on trial. But Jesus is really judging them and putting them on trial because one day they'll stand before the Son of Man. They think they're going to put an end to Jesus and his ministry, but by killing him, they're ensuring his resurrection and glorification. Things are not what they seem to be. One commentator points out that at this moment, at this moment where Jesus' enemies seem to have mastery over him, in this moment Jesus sees the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation at the Father's right hand, Pentecost, the glorious return on the clouds of heaven, the judgment day, all rolled into one single event, a glorification that begins now even with his condemnation and death. And that's the plan these leaders put into motion. Let's look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? You see, claiming to be the Messiah, to be the king, wasn't a capital crime. The Jews were waiting. They were expecting the Christ, the Messiah, to come. But the leaders didn't have a category for a mere human being claiming to be the exalted Son of Man figure in Daniel chapter 7, one who would receive worship as God and be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom one who would sit at the right hand of Yahweh, the right hand of power. So they hear what Jesus says, and they choose to utterly reject him. They reject his claim as a lie, and so they spit and strike and mock him. And this rejection shows us that that there really is no middle ground when it comes to King Jesus. This is the point C.S. Lewis makes in this trilemma. Based on what Jesus said and what Jesus did, there's only one of three conclusions you can draw about who Jesus is. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Jesus isn't just some prophet or guru or some nice guy. He's either, number one, a liar, a deceiver, a devil who tried to trick people into thinking he was God but wasn't. Number two, he's a lunatic as in someone who's crazy and out of his mind, claiming to be God. Or number three, he is Lord. He really is who he says he is. And the council chose number one, liar, demonic deceiver. And if you're tuning in this afternoon and Jesus isn't your Lord, you have to wrestle with the question, who is he? You need to be honest with yourself and honest with King Jesus and stop thinking of Jesus as just a great moral teacher, a nice guy. A great moral teacher, a nice guy, doesn't simply claim to sit at the right hand of God and come on the clouds of heaven. Who is he? What is your choice? But for those of us who do know him as Lord, for us, as one commentator writes, he is worthy, worthy of our infinite trust, love, submission, and obedience because He is our Lord, our God, our King. He drank the bitter cup for me, the cup of God's wrath. After prayer, we're going to sing a closing song. I'm going to take a moment to pray and also offer one important application. So if you're watching this video, don't miss the final part after the song. So let's close in prayer. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, your Son, who prayed boldly and surrendered completely, who took all his sorrow and trials and temptations and fears before the throne of grace and brought them to you, that he might stand up in his hour of trial. Lord, so often we're self-sufficient. We think we got it we think little of prayer. So forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for thinking we can live this Christian life on our own, that we can live a life that pleases you on our own, that we can surrender and submit to your will on our own. Forgive us and change us and help us to pray like your son. In his name we pray. Amen.